From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the big event and the return of Paula Poundstone. This is the third year she's dropped by the Chronicle before her big New Year's Eve show in San Francisco. We record in the Chronicle archive where there's an unlimited resource of cool stuff to explore, including Paula Poundstone photos and clippings from the 1980s when she rose to fame as a San Francisco comic, often headlining the other cafe. We talked about Paula's year as a bike messenger in San Francisco. She shared some vivid comedy day in the park memories and talked about the porta potty she donated for last year's show. And we talked a lot about the mindset of a comedian. Here's Paula talking about the only dream that she remembers and really the only dream she needs. I was someplace in a field and I may have been, I may have been by myself, uh, although there were perhaps other people around, but no one that I knew. It was in a field and a, a, tor- a tornado came through. Everybody laid down, people were screaming and everybody laid down. They tried to get in the furrows of this field and it was for naught that Twister came through and swept us all up anyways. And in my mind, the way the Twister was, it was sort of like a cotton candy or, or rolled up sleeping bag. Uh-huh. There, there, it was rolled. And so I was within the Twister, I was in between um, two layers of, uh, I don't know, Twister fluff. <laughs> uh, that's how it looked in my dream. And I, I went, na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. <laughs> And the people in the layers of Twister fluff that I couldn't see laughed. Oh. I've told that to other comics before, and they're like, oh, my God, what a great dream. (laughs) And it was. It was like a great dream. The idea that when, you know, when the chips were down, uh, you know, that I made people laugh was just exhilarating to me. Paula's known for her work on the NPR show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, but she's really hitting a groove with her own podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. And she's continuing to tour. She'll be at the Raven Theater in Healdsburg on February 21st. One more order of business. The big event later this month will become the Total SF Podcast. I'll have Heather Knight back on to explain that soon. The general vibe of the podcast won't change, but there will be a new name and logo. Don't panic when that happens. Just click on Total SF and keep listening. Finally, this podcast is rated PG-13. Couple profanities, nothing really big, but just wanted to give you the warning. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Okay, so I, now I, I now we're now we're live because I just got to turn on the mics now. Is that cool? I'm recording because yeah, yeah. you're showing me your phones right now. Yeah, I, I could do a whole episode on it. <laughs> I, I I use a flip phone to talk. Yeah, uh, because it's better. Uh, but but you know because social media has forced its way into my life a few years ago. Yeah, um, I use this stupid smartphone for that. It, this is an iPad. This is it a, is. I got a. I got a new phone. I had a. I mean, I mean, it is. I had an iPad, a four. It, it's 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 closer to an iPad. It's like an iPad, and my iPhone six had a baby. Yeah. And then it's fully grown, and this is what. No, yeah. it's like carrying around a toaster oven in your pocket. I just got it, <laughs> but I had a. I had a. What, what they call, I forget what they call it, but I had an iPhone four, 
And I got the iPhone 4 the day before the 5 came out, which just baffled the salesperson. Uh-huh. He kept saying, don't you want to wait till tomorrow? I said, no. I, I just would. I just want a phone. So I don't really need. I didn't need a lot of the bells and whistles. But my, uh, what is it? My podcast. Nobody listens to Paul Poundstone. It's going to start. Um, I don't know what the word is. Like filming the podcast. Oh yeah, with so, the phone. Gotcha. Which is why I got this kind because it has a fancy ass camera on it, and yeah. I thought it would help on that little project. Yeah. Because now's the time of year you start thinking about what the little projects are yeah. for the next year. Do you do that? I do. I do. I'm very much a let's start over and, and get things moving for 2020 and do all the big things that I didn't. I, I, I recharge in 2020. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm hoping. I took all the lists of things to do off the back of my bedroom door yesterday and re, you know, uh, refined some of the things I had actually done. By the way, let me yeah. just say that, um, and then and then some stuff just rolls over to the next year. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I tell people don't text me because texting on a flip phone is oh, yeah. just a sad it thing. Takes days. Yeah, you, yeah, I could better do smoke signals. Yeah. Well, welcome back. Welcome to San Francisco again. Thanks welcome. so much. Is, I was so excited when I got the email that that you'd come back and visit me again because I th- this is a. This is great for me. I'm going to see your show tonight. Oh, I'm very excited. And by the time people listen to this, uh, your show will be over. Although you're coming back to Healdsburg, where my parents live, February 21st. I just wrote that on the big new dry erase calendar on the wall yesterday. I I never even heard of Healdsburg until I wrote it on the big new dry erase uh, wall calendar yesterday. Haven't been to Healdsburg, the Raven Theater? No. Lovely. I've seen several no. shows there. Oh, I think great. You're well, I'm looking forward it. to it. Yeah, yeah. So welcome back to San Francisco, and uh, congratulations on the podcast, well, which- thank you. I got to say, you had started it last time, mm-hmm. and I listened to a couple. I felt like you, like someone told you, hey, you should do this podcast, and you weren't sure. Um, <laughs> I've been listening the last six months. You've hit a groove. Oh, Nobody that's very nice to, to hear. Poundstone. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, like anything else, I think it just, it takes time and, uh, 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 you know, hopefully it's not going to take all of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, <laughs> but it, it takes time and you have to flush things out. And, yeah. you know, it's very much like being a stand-up comic in that um, it, it, only doing it improves doing it. Yeah. You know, every now and then, I remember years ago, um, uh, in San Francisco in particular, people would come up, uh, people would teach stand-up comedy classes. Uh-huh. They did it in L.A. a little bit. Like a Stella Adler here. type thing. Um, you yeah, know. there were a couple people here that I think, you know, tried that. And to me, it was snake oil. To, to me, it was just like, you know, here's how you learn to be a stand-up comic. Yeah. You can open mic nights, you know, but there's no shortcut for being in front of an audience. Yeah, You know, that's just because that's what it is. It's a relationship with the audience. And I think the same thing for the goofy, uh, silly podcast. You just have to kind of say you got to throw the spaghetti up on the wall and see what sticks. When they came to you with the idea, what did you think? I mean, podcasting. I don't know. I'm assuming someone came to you and said, I got this idea. You should be on a podcast. Oh, originally, the first podcast I did was with um, Doug Berman. Uh, and we did it for NPR, uh-huh. and it was called Live from the Poundstone Institute, and it was very fun. Um, uh, and it was Doug's idea, and it was Doug's um, design, uh, and it was really fun to do. But we only did ten episodes because it was very expensive. Mm-hmm. We had all the, we were live in front of an audience, and believe it or not, that's expensive. Uh-huh. Um, we had NPR engineers, and that's expensive, um, and. Uh, yeah, it was just too costly to 
um, to continue because you know everybody has a podcast now it's one of the few things that makes us human is we we breathe oxygen we don't eat our young and we have a podcast um in fact when you're in uh if you're out in la you try not to make contact with anybody because you know they're going to say will you come do my podcast and and i have the same uh, you know i do the same to other people it's kind of the new like i have a screenplay yeah we check out my we read my screenplay give me some we all have podcasts now and 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 a lot of them are really good by the way uh you know um uh but uh the the way you make money is by increasing the numbers of people that listen mm. and then and then it's the advertising time that's how you make money doing a podcast and um because there are so many it's very hard to be the individual that has a, a ton of listeners and um, the listeners tend to be uh what's the word diffused uh-huh. among all of the podcasts and i i listen to a few really good ones but you know now especially and with television too uh, right don't almost every day doesn't someone say to you oh you have to watch her oh you have to listen to and i keep thinking to myself who has time for all this yeah yeah you know? the other thing is is it you said it like everyone has one and you can tell who wants to have it and who doesn't. And it's (laughs) not always who you think. Cause I learned in this medium, you can tell like people can tell if, if you don't want to be here, if I don't want to be here, I'll tell you one that like shocked me. Alan Alda. Have you listened to his podcast? I haven't. It's clear and vivid with Alan Alda. I don't know what his career path was. I'm guessing, you know, he, he was super famous and then had trouble getting roles. Maybe there was a humbling moment. He went into podcast with both feet and he's such a good interviewer and the people coming on have respect for him. And, uh, oh, and he's it's beloved. just, a, it's a good mix. Oh, that's and great. And he's a good interviewer and he's grateful. Um, gratitude. I think like being grateful for where you are in life and your position and everything that's the kind of thing that comes across on a podcast. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's very intimate. Yeah. It's it's very, very intimate. You know, it's funny that you say that because I'm friends with Mike Farrell, um, uh, who uh, co-starred oh. co- with Alan of Alda. Of course, yeah. Um, whereas I've talked to Alan Alda. He was a, a not-my-job guest on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me one time, and I may have... Uh-huh. But that's my only contact I've ever had with him. Um, so, his, I'm, so I'm not thinking about him all the time. Um, but... Uh, uh, one day I had gone to something with Mike and I was telling him something about how hard I was working on the podcast and he said oh he said yeah he said Alan said to me um, uh, that he had a podcast and I said who's Alan and he said Alda and I went oh yes yes and then he said and I said to him I haven't seen it uh, <laughs> you know when I lived in San Francisco, in fact, uh, or the year, or, on my way here, I think I told you before, I got here on a Greyhound bus. I used to take the Greyhound bus around the country to see what clubs were like in different cities, and that is how I arrived here. And um, back then, I had uh, I had obsessive compulsive disorder, but I didn't know it. Um, and one of the way one of the obsessions that I had was Mash, uh-huh. the television program. And uh, it, back then, it showed at like. 5.30, it was syndicated. So it would yeah, be on at like yeah. 5 and 5.30 on some channel. And as I, as the bus would pull into different cities where, where it stopped, um, there there would be billboards advertising what time MASH was on, mm-hmm. you know, because that was when it first went into syndication. It was still running, um, 
it, it was still first run on the on the network, but then it, it, it was in syndication on some other yeah, channel. Because it was on like eight or nine years. It yeah, went, it went three times than as the long actual, as the Korean War. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I would see the poster saying, the billboard saying what time, you know, it was on. And I had almost no money. So the, the odd um, prioritization of this uh, uh, financially um, can't be expressed strongly enough. Um, now, in those days... There, in the Greyhound stations, there were these chairs that you could sit in that had a television uh-huh. um, attached to the chair, and it was coin operated. Oh, I remember. No, and I... so I would put my quarters in and 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 watch uh, Mash <laughs> while I was at the bus stop. Uh, and, and I mean, literally, I, I I might buy a milk, and and that was all of the money that I had. <laughs> I get a milk. And watch Mash, and the milk was to go with the Oreo cookies that I had, uh, yeah. and, and uh, so yeah. So when I poor Mike Farrell, when I first met him, I knew so much more about the show than he did. Oh, I, so I, it's like Star Trek convention level, like yeah, detail. I, mean, I did my best to like not say very much because I, I think the first time um, I, I mentioned uh, like a, a line that he had long since forgotten. Yeah, I think I noticed him take a step slightly back. <laughs> But in fact, yeah, that was, uh, yeah. In fact, when when they had the last MASH episode, this was when the, there was really the first show that had these final episodes that were, uh, you know, considered like a big deal. Yeah. And um, the other cafe where I w- worked a lot back then, the comedy club in San Francisco, um, the other cafe was not going to have a show that night because... They figured there'd be no audience because of the final mash oh episode. My God, the, the goodbye episode with the stone spoiler with yeah. the stones spelled out. That was such a good. It was finale. a really good finale, and uh, Richard Snow, who used to run the other cafe, um, came up to me like the night before or something, and he said, um, "We don't think you should be alone tomorrow night." <laughs> That's how obsessed with the show I was. And I had to be alone because I just sobbed for the whole night. I thought, I don't really want to, I don't want to fall apart in front of the others. Um, But yeah, yeah. That was before it was actually diagnosed, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you have to listen to Alan. You really have to listen to Alan Aldo's podcast now. Oh, yeah, I will now. Um, Wait, I'm opening a soda. Oh, no, that's okay. That's fine. No, I I like the sound effects. Ambient. uh, (laughs) Um, Other cafe, you worked there too, right? I, I. I worked behind the counter there, is that what you mean? Yeah, so the great thing about being in the archive here is I find new articles and new photos of you. I want to talk about the photo we just found. but um, This building is amazing, by the way. But uh, thank you. I I love that you're willing to come here um, uh, every year. No, I could hide it. You guys, (laughs) uh, uh, um, there there are rows and rows and rows of of, uh, file shelves with uh, microfiche and... And folders and just every going back from the 1800s, they have they've chronicled the chronicle. Yeah, we have glass negatives back when they were on, wow, on glass. That is so cool. And and I find stuff. I mean, I'm looking for A, and then I run into B, and then I find C. So I'm constantly yeah. finding stuff that I'm not looking for, which is even right. more mystical. It's sort of like the internet without the internet, right? It, it is. You know, yeah, it is a little creepy though because people think they listen to a podcast and think it's this huge production but I'm doing everything I mean I like learned on YouTube how to use this mixing board so wow. I'll bring people down here and you know who I am you know I'm 
you know, mellow and not a violent person, but I brought people down here where it's just me and them and they don't know me. And there's a little bit of a serial killer vibe down here. Oh yeah. Because you could, you could take care of someone down here. Well, I think part of it is that large knife you carry on your belt there. That's, that could be off-putting. Not to me. Not to you Because, you know, I'm not one of those people who clings to life. But, uh, yeah, to somebody, you know, somebody younger. And when you walked in this room, um, the plastic tarp that I had you walk on, that was yeah, a that little, was little a alarming, little bit too. off-putting. And, and you said, put this tag on your toe. <laughs> It'll save time. Yeah, that was off-putting. Anyway, I, I was digging through and, and saw a new article, and it mentioned um, I had asked you before you were a bike messenger in San Francisco. Yeah. And I didn't know whether you, you like, did that full time or, or if it was just like a thing you did one or two days. Oh, no. It was full time, yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, so I, wanna, how my, I made my living wage for a while. Yeah, and, uh, and a lot of hills, a lot of... Well, the thing about me and being a bike messenger... And uh-huh. if you're still waiting for a package, let me explain. <laughs> um, I do not have the strength to ride up a hill, and I do not have the courage nor control to ride down a hill. Uh-huh. So when I came to the hills, uh, of which one did in downtown San Francisco, uh-huh. I got off and pushed the bike. Yeah. Um, and they paid us. It was you know minimum wage. And then, um, but you also after your 28th package, mm-hmm. you got. Um, 10 cents per package bonus. Uh, And so everyone was sort of ravenous to get these packages. I was probably not, you know, demanding enough. um, But because you lined up waiting for them to, for the dispatch to give you the next package. And it was a, um, it was specifically a in-house bike messenger uh, team for uh, a place that did copies and blueprints. Gotcha. Um, so those packages were heavy. I'm, I'm thinking very like Mike Brady architecture, big plans. Right, exactly. Roll, yeah. ro- rolled up. Uh, uh, so really, really heavy and and shitty bikes. Yeah. Uh, uh, in fact, I remember one time we had like a, we had a, you know, employee meeting and one of the guys complained. In fact, I guess a few people did. I, I didn't have the I didn't have the brains to complain. Um, but a couple of people were complaining that they saw a, 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 some sort of marking on their bike that indicated they had gotten it at Goodwill, and they just felt that that wasn't, you know. So you're not bringing your own bike. You show up. Oh and no, like and a you get like, like a, a shitty bike there, and yeah. and uh, and they had a you know had a basket, but the basket of course can't hold. Uh, you can't put within. The, uh, a, a bike basket, a large uh, 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 rolled up blueprint. Uh-huh. Um, so you would bungee cord it onto the top of the basket, and it was really poorly balanced. Um, there were death traps. That's what <laughs> there were. And, and, and really, within the time that I worked, I actually had seniority, and I was only there for eight months. Yeah. Um, because it, no one could keep that job for very long. And within the time that I worked there, like more than one person, not from our company, but from the other bike messenger company, more than one person had been uh, um, uh, killed. Uh, uh, you know, cabs hated us. Yeah, so cabs I mean, would actually go after you on purpose. Because there are, uh, well, now it's Uber and Lyft. I bike into work. And uh, if it's nice out, I bike into work. I live in Alameda. I take the ferry, bike into the ferry, bike into work from the ferry building. We have bike lanes now. I mean, it's... 
you know, built to be safer, those Ubers and Lyfts go right into the bike lanes. It's oh, yeah. Not a, I'm, I'm sure it was the taxis back then. It you was barely, the taxis You barely back see then. a taxi And now. then, of course, the uh, the subway tracks oh, yeah. would grab yeah. your tires, um, reach right up and grab your tires. Uh, that happened to me any number of times. I'm sure I told you the story about the morning. I And I was perpetually exhausted. I think yeah. I still am. But um, back then, uh, I went to the clubs at night, and... Um, uh, you know, and hung out, uh, and then uh, and then I went to work in the morning, and so there wasn't a lot of sleep, and so I was I, I was always tired, and I, I back then I didn't know enough to realize that that could sometimes influence your judgment, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that it wasn't really healthy for the brain. But that's water under the bridge now. <laughs> uh, but anyways, one morning I was riding, and I made a left from a right hand lane, and uh, entirely my fault, not anybody else's fault. But a pickup truck hit me. And uh, I was. I have so, not heard this. Oh, I, I was yeah. so tired yeah. that I, it didn't do me any harm at all. I, I sort of bounced up onto their roof, uh, not the roof, excuse me, onto the, you know, the hood. Yeah. Uh, 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 and uh, I think the two guys that were in the pickup truck probably had to take the day off work. I mean, I think they soiled themselves. <laughs> I was fine. You were fine. There happened to be a cop nearby, and so he came over, but. No one needed to call a cop. There was not. There were no injuries, and it was entirely my fault. So if you guys are out there listening, I'm so sorry. <laughs> they probably didn't drive for like months after that. Because imagine just driving along, and all of a sudden some asshole for no good reason who's not supposed to be there is on your hood. Uh, but I was fine. I think I was tired enough that I I was just floppy. I still think the sympathy goes in your direction. Do you still have, have do you ever have an anxiety dream about biking in San Francisco, you know, even though we're 35 years later? You know, mercifully, I don't remember my dreams hardly ever anymore, and I'm oh, so glad. Dreaming is such a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I, you know, it's such a waste of, of uh Emotional energy. You know, you yeah. have those dreams. You wake up and for half the day, you're still sort of focused on what you dreamt about, and you're like, "Oh, for Christ's sakes, it wasn't even real." Yeah. And then some people like to interpret them. I, I got no time for that. I got no time for that. Absolutely. <laughs> I did have one good dream once ever in my entire life uh, that I do remember, which uh-huh. was I was someplace in a field, and I may have been, I may have been by myself. Uh, although there were perhaps other people around, but no one that I knew. It was in a field, and uh, a, tor- a tornado came through. This doesn't now, sound like a good dream, Paul. Uh, you know, nothing of all the nature's fury, uh, a tornado scare the fuck out of me. I've, I've never yeah. actually been in one or seen one. Um, but uh, uh, in this dream, everybody laid down. People were screaming, and everybody laid down. They tried to get in the furrows of this field, and it was for naught that Twister came through and swept us all up anyways. And in my mind, the way the Twister was, it was sort of like a cotton candy or, or rolled up sleeping bag. Uh-huh. There, there, it was rolled. And so I was within the Twister. I was in between um, two layers of, uh, I don't know, Twister fluff. <laughs> uh, that's how it looked in my dream. And I, I went... And the people in the layers of Twister fluff that I couldn't see laughed. Oh. I've told that to other comics before, and they're like, oh my God, what a great dream. (laughs) 
And it was. It was like a great dream. The idea that when, you know, when the chips were down, uh, you know, that I made people laugh was just exhilarating to me. That's yeah. the only dream I've ever appreciated. Well, that's the one. That's yeah, the that's one to hold one. on to. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. Uh, I, I think I had what... one where I was making out with Larry from Three Stooges, but I, that's, that's not the nice. one that I really no, treasure. No, I'd stop writing my dreams down if I had a dream <laughs> that's, that's that good. I don't know what the journalism equivalent to that dream is. but uh... Uh, I'll tell you what the journalism equivalent is to that dream. That you get through to Deutsche Bank. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that you're the guy who gets Deutsche Bank to talk. That oh, would be, oh my God, you know that what, would be though? joyous. I know, like, I'm not that, um, I have a partner who I do a lot of a lot of my projects with, and we have movie nights and stuff like that, but she's the city hall reporter, and she's, like, this kick-ass reporter, and I just look at that and go, I don't have the nerve. I'd, I'd be apologizing to the people at Deutsche Bank <laughs> for bothering them late at night or something. I could never... Well, maybe that's what they need. I could never call people at home, Paula. I mean, like... Like even if I, I I was in the right and it was an important story, I just I'd be, just I was, couldn't do it. I'm too apologetic. Yeah, to, to break that yeah. kind of big story. Yeah. Thankfully, I work with a lot of people who have that skill. But, well, uh, maybe, but I mean, maybe everyone's tried that sort of hard nosed journalism tactic, and yeah. and that's not the thing that'll open doors. Maybe if you went to Deutsche Bank and you said, "Listen, I'm sorry to bother you," maybe <laughs> if you use your demeanor. Good cop. Uh, it could open them up. Good cop them. All right. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I I wouldn't throw it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, wanted to run a couple other things by you because I came in with you and brought you right to the table because I found our comedy day in the park photos and uh, from 1987 with uh, Whoopi and, and uh, actually I've got a photo up there right there with uh, Whoopi and, and oh, uh, uh, Whoopi and Robin. Well, I know later this year I want to do uh, get some memories of comedy day and I think I found a photo of you. I showed it to you. In a in a, uh, a Letterman jacket. Yeah, it was an LS jacket from my so high school. So that was you, Lincoln Suburb Regional High. You're wearing your Letterman jacket in '87. Yeah. And by the way, I didn't earn it. Uh, <laughs> okay. They gave it to me after the fact when they felt sorry for me. Well, you can solve this mystery. Why are you wearing a Letterman jacket? You're in your late 20s, I think, by then, in a Chronicle Archive Comedy Day photo. And could you tell us that and any Comedy Day memories you might have? I um comedy day in the park is it's been going on for I think more year? than forty years. No, I, I don't think it is forty yet. You don't think it's forty yet? No, I think it's I think this was thirty nine or thirty eight this last yeah, year. On I the think. on the Robin Williams Meadow they call it yeah. now, and and people come out and they're surprise guests, and it's a institution. Yeah, yeah. I well, I was I was here when it started. Um, but I wasn't invited, and so I was jealous. Uh-huh. Um, and I can remember, I, uh, I was very jealous. Um, and so I didn't go. Or maybe I stopped by, and then I went home and nursed my jealousy. Um, and I think it was midday, and I, and I went to bed to further nurse my jealousy. And I lived um, in an apartment uh, right up near, what was it, Fulton? Is that the one that runs yeah. by the park? Yeah, Five Fulton. I, I take it frequently. So, yeah, 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 I remember yeah. the Five. Oh, it was a yeah. beautiful thing. Um, and uh, I, was, I was in my bedroom nursing my jealousy, and uh, <laughs> I could hear the crowd from my bedroom, which oh, was wow. really kicking my ass, frankly. How, how old are you at this point? Because you came here I when must you were have been 19 20, or maybe. 20. Yeah. yeah, you were not 21 yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, 
and, and at one point I could, and I could, I think I could hear Robin's voice even. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had it in a different part of the park back then on the half shell thingy, I think it was. And uh, it, it drew enormous, enormous crowds. People would sleep overnight the night before to get good seats. It was big. Um, and uh, and I, I, at one point I could hear like this just explosion explosion of laughter from the crowd and of uh you know exclamation from the crowd and later i found out robin's pants had ripped that was that was (laughs) the uh i don't think intentionally i think it was just a thing um and uh yeah and then i think the following year i did get asked and and i was um you know i was fairly new in the business I, i i don't think i knew that um uh, but uh probably only a couple couple years in yeah. and um you know the thing about open mic nights back then it's probably still like this now but i'm really not certain uh, there were so many of us who wanted to to go on and it was the training ground it was college it mm-hmm. was that's how you learned to be a stand up comic and uh you know you'd go and you'd wait your turn to go on and sometimes the MC would sort of manipulate the list where somebody came after you but uh, uh you know in the line but they would put them on before you because they were trying to build a you know a show that people you know would stay to to see that was part of it um but you know from about mm, i don't know eight o'clock to say 10 o'clock mm-hmm. was prime audience time you know and the crowd would be great and after 10 o'clock every comic that left the stage uh, you know a good half of the audience left with them Uh because they were like okay that was fun now we're done and and so as the night goes on the the the, this crowd winnows down (laughs) and by like 1 30 in the morning now please welcome paula poundstone (laughs) and there would be just a handful of people now the truth is um, it's a little bit like powerlifting to learn to entertain a handful of people. I literally worked sometimes when there were three audience members, uh-huh. and to be able to do that is a skill honing task, um, <laughs> not one that one looks forward to, but uh, it, it really it really does sort of build your chops. And I would go within the same year. I'm sure I went from working to three people to sixty thousand people at the um, at Comedy Day. That's how many people used to come. Wow. And now it's big, but it's not as big as it was. Sure, sure. I hope it gets that big again. Yeah. Because it's a wonderful concept, a free show for the people of San Francisco from the comics who are grateful to them. It, it was. It's like hardly strictly bluegrass before hardly strictly bluegrass. Which I don't know what that, that is. That is a free bluegrass festival that Warren Hellman, who has since died, but it was a very very wealthy financier with. Uh, uh, he he basically bankrolled this festival. It. I, I say it's like what Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg think about all the money they're spending to run for president. Imagine oh, yeah, yeah, if yeah. instead of that. They put all that money into a bluegrass festival. That's wow. what this is, and it, it's it's he's dead, and there's a whatever a, what do you call it an annuity. It, it's going to oh, go right. on forever. Oh right, so it keeps going. Oh, that's great. Yeah, but but people talk about that, and it gets lifted up so much that bluegrass festival. And I'm like, that's comedy day in the park. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's what it was. Yeah, it was and it is, there. and it is just as simple as that. It's yeah. just as simple as, you know, the comics of San Francisco give you this free show because we love it here thank you yeah um and uh 
uh, it was started by uh, uh, Jose Simone, um, and I forget if Deb Durst was involved the first year or not. I don't know, probably, um, but for the last, you know, many years, and I think it's 39 years old now, I'm not sure, but for the last many years, um, Debbie Durst has been the... Uh, uh, you know, the chairwoman. Yeah, um, yeah. But tons of volunteers. And the volunteers have done it for so many years. One of the things I've enjoyed the last few years that I've performed there is I come early so that I can sit in the back of Debbie's car with her <laughs> and watch her tell people what to do. But for the most part, they don't even speak in full sentences. <laughs> She'll just go, did you do the?" And they go, yeah. <laughs> because they've done it a lot, and so they know what needs done. And every year, the people who are the powers that be that run the park come with a new regulation. Yeah. Um, oh, that's San Francisco. Yeah. You know. And every year, it throws them a curveball at the last second. And they're like, well, we didn't know that. Oh, yes. You have to have three-inch thick plywood underneath every cart. Yeah. It's, okay. Uh, anyways, it's a brilliant event and um, very fun to do. And a lot of uh, old buddies come back. Yeah. Um, When's the last time you've been back? I was there this year, and I was there last year. Oh, wow. And I hope to go again this year. You know, um, Deb did a wonderful thing for me. I donated some money, in a, and I, uh, 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 because it's expensive to, to yeah. put this on, um, and I was happy to donate some money. But I specifically asked um, that my money be used um, to provide the porta-potties uh, for the comics. Uh-huh. And... Um, and uh, she put up a sign to say um, that I had donated that porta potty. So, what did the sign look like? Is it like when you go to the roadside and and, and you know this road it wasn't is even, clean? It because, wasn't even that fancy. No? It just okay. said porta potties provided by Paul Poundstone. <laughs> um, just on a white piece of paper. She said she saved it. And we'll use it again next year. Um, but here's the thing: the one that I provided, because there were two. Uh-huh. Um, uh, the one that I provided had was spacious inside she actually upgraded the kind of porta potty that she got uh, very uh, n- n- no more beautiful tribute could have been given <laughs> and you know i pee a lot so i was in there a lot it was just nice to be able to turn around and spend some time <laughs> well i wondered if you've had a good uh, comedy day story that that's that's excellent um i wanted to ask you to another find i've got here and I got to be honest, we talked a little bit about it before the show, but I found your first interview and um, it was hilarious, but you had this philosophy about how you're living your life as if you're going to die when you're 28. (laughs) And it's this really upbeat interview. Ben Fong Torres, who, you know, is a legend around here. He was uh, with Rolling Stone and and, uh, uh, is a writer of books. And it's this really upbeat chatty article and then it just hits this point where you're like yeah i think i might just die when i'm 28 and i'm glad that didn't happen first of all but i remember this very well for a couple of reasons a everyone thought it was so weird um b uh, it was one of many things i have not followed through on um okay here's where this philosophy came from and yes it does come from actually a happier place Uh uh, than one might realize which is, I, I had seen when I was in high school, in my really depressed, like, you know, finding yourself, what does it all mean, high school years, um, that I, uh, I had seen a television show. It was a one-season drama, I believe. It was called, um, what the heck was it called? Did I tell you? It Lucas was Tanner. It was Lucas called Lucas Tanner. Tanner. Yeah, it's and it was story. David Hartman uh, played a character, the lead character. He had been 
a San Francisco, no, a St. Louis Cardinal baseball player, mm-hmm. the character had, um, and had gotten an inj- injury and now had uh, become an English teacher in a high school uh, instead. And there was an episode, of course, in that 70s uh, drama way, every week, you know, he would be involved with a, you know a different um, student's problem or, or or a different problem that would get you know tied up in a bow within the within the episode. Um, so in this particular episode, it began with Lucas was in the the men's room or the boys' room or something, and he discovers that one of his students is throwing up in the toilet, and he, he pulls him out of there, and and the kid had taken some pills. And when he gets to the bottom of why the, this, this young boy had done this, it turns out that the boy's mother has been diagnosed with cancer. So Lucas, of course, becomes involved. He falls in love with the mother, but then he doesn't pursue it because the mother decides that she's going to take her son out of school. She's been given a month, a, a year to live, excuse me. Mm-hmm. She's been given a year to live. So she decides she's going to take her kid out of school and they're going to travel for a year. And this was when it occurred to me that if you knew you were going to die, you would do shit that you wanted to do. Whereas if you had this feeling you're just going to go on forever, um, then, then you wouldn't, you know, then you would do crappy things that no one likes to do because you have to. Now, there are some holes in this philosophy, <laughs> yes. come to find out. Uh, one thing is that a lot of things that you want to do require resources or some sort of foundation or maybe even a skill that you develop yeah. over time. Um, but I pushed all that aside as a youngster. Um, so what I began to, what I, I had this philosophy. Now you have to keep in mind that when I was, I might have been 14, 13 or 14 when I saw that episode. Uh-huh. So 28 sounded forever away to me i mean but jesus i can't even imagine being that old now um so i decided that i would i would kill myself when i was 28 and knowing that i was going to do that would create an urgency Mm -hmm. about my time um i it didn't um and 28 came and went but apparently, uh, this interview I had done somewhere in the in the prime of that philosophy. And by the way, when I turned twenty eight and twenty nine and subsequent years, I sort of feel a little embarrassed. Like people are going to bump into me and go, "Oh, still here, huh?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Well, now I'm old enough that I can use the I can use the philosophy um, w- without having to off myself. Yeah. Um, now you know. I, you know, I feel uh, death's breath at the back of my neck. Um, and uh, this was before terms like bucket list had come up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but now I, yeah, I think a lot of it was, you're right, appreciating what you had and using, um, uh, and again, I did skip the part of having the foundation for things that I wanted to do. But the good news is that somewhere along the way, I think one of the things that happened that made me maybe ignore my uh, my checkout date um, was that I so fell in love with being a stand-up comic mm-hmm. and uh, so enjoyed the process of building that foundation and learning how to do it. And and uh, and the audience is my best friend. Um, and uh, no matter how dark my personal life may get, and sometimes it is, uh, man, I go on stage 
and I'll share sometimes with the audience, uh, you know, what the thing is that I felt was so, so dark and that somewhere inside me I thought was exclusive to me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the key. You know, you always think you're the only one, and it's never true. And then I'll say this thing, and people laugh. The only thing maybe that doesn't fall into that category is um, the dream where I was making out with Larry from the Three Stooges. No one else has ever no said to else. me, oh, I had that. <laughs> well, I have to say, you explaining this, it makes total sense. So shame on you, Ben Fong Torres, for not <laughs> getting the context <laughs> Well, of the lesson here. Maybe I didn't explain it that good back then. But I, 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 <laughs> I, I have recently been reading these books um, because I because I had a guest on my podcast. Nobody listens to Paula Poundstone. Mm-hmm. I had a guest named Caitlin Doty, and she's a mortician. Uh-huh. And when uh, she, I don't know, she went into the field when she was 23 years old, she began working at a crematorium in Oakland, I think it was, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, already I'm like blown away by a 23-year-old woman who goes, yeah, I'll work at a crematorium. Um, but she ha- she wrote a book called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes where she explains that, you know, the period of time that she worked there and she has wonderful f- things that she learned and philosophies about it. And, uh, and then she wrote another book called from here to eternity, where she goes around the world seeing how other countries and other cultures deal with death and the body and the, you know, the, the physical part and the, and the grieving part. Um, but one of the stories she tells is that she had a friend who um, was a scientist and was working on a project to extend life. Um, and she has, uh, disagrees with the friend. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she says is, it's our mortality that makes us productive. It's knowing that, you know, it's like having a deadline as a writer, right? Yeah. It's, it, it's knowing that you only have this much time and, and, and that's what drives us forward. And so basically she, in a much more eloquent way, says my Lucas Tanner theory <laughs> in her book. Yeah. Um, so yeah, now I don't have to off myself because life will do it itself. Um, but I am... Uh, I am driven. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm glad you brought up the podcast because I, I wanted to, we kind of started with that, but I wanted to end with it too. Um, I like your approach. You've got all this wild stuff going on. You've usually got a single musician in there. Different, different. maybe it's the a house tuba. Band. The house band. Maybe it's a tuba. Maybe it's someone with an acoustic guitar and who's written three or four songs for you that day. Um, it's you and Adam, and there's a lot of banter, hand puppets. But what I love is that the guests, um, it's not just like a comedian friend of the week. It's not, uh, it's people who I would imagine are probably in the, in the, the, the seats at your shows. And yeah, it's I, just, I re- hear, it's, it's people with an expertise in an area. Yeah. Um, but they're just regular people. In fact, they're often very nervous. The, uh, the woman who came to talk about urban chicken farming uh-huh. <laughs> um, was terrified uh-huh. um, and, and had a lot of makeup on for an urban chicken person, I think, yeah. on a podcast. Um, but yeah, they're, 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 they, are, they are really just regu- regular people, but that have an expertise. And so, um, you know, my original idea for the podcast um, was... I originally had the idea to have a show called How to Move Out of Your Parents' House, mm-hmm. um, meaning that, uh, A, we're all still moving out of our parents' house, and B, um, 
what are the things that you need to know in order to function as as an adult? And uh, and my my partners in the project felt that that was too too na- that people wouldn't understand the title and it was too narrow and blah 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 blah. And so instead, I changed it to Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. But with the interviews, we still have the same goal. Yeah. Um, and I often don't remember what they said, by the way, and I even summarize it sometimes. Um, I often don't remember what they said, which is kind of a sad, weird thing about me. But I do remember one thing, and maybe it was the most important information that we, you know, that we ever got from a guest, um, which is I had a plumber one time. Mm-hmm. And she said, don't put Kleenex in the toilet. Because <laughs> it's, it's a thicker <laughs> ply than uh, toilet paper, uh-huh. and it'll stop up the pipes. Do you have any idea how many years I've been putting <laughs> and having a terrible problem with my toilet too? It, yeah. it, it's constantly got problems, usually around the holidays. Uh, and she also said, pour um, hot water down your drain like every month or so. Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing that. That's useful. It's Exactly. That's what I was looking for. I was looking for utilitarian, how do I get through this, you know, who do I call when there's a dead person in my house? What uh, is the mold on my ceiling really going to kill me? And by yeah. the way, that's been controversial. Yeah, we did episode after episode about the mold on my ceiling. Some uh, people feeling very strongly that uh, I should check myself into a hospital now, and other people feeling like <laughs> oh, that's a fine. thing. Everyone it's just fine. says that it's a conspiracy. It's a big mold. You yeah, know, big so mold exactly. <laughs> Actually, you know, my landlord, I, I called her up about the mold uh-huh. because the roof had been leaking and then there was mold on my ceiling in the closet. And uh, she never, she always just has her nephew Nick come do things. And Nick is sort of he's sort of sad sack looking guy and very apologetic and clearly has no real skills. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'll always say, like, I don't really know about the... Uh, so <laughs> she sends Nick uh, um, to deal with the mold and she's actually she came too, and she says, "Nick, bleach it, bleach it." <laughs> and so Nick reaches up with some bleach and he wipes off the mold. So then I have this mold expert on the show, and I go, "How? What are you supposed to do with mold?" She goes, "Well, for one thing, never bleach it." <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, what I said to myself is, you know, I probably have like black lung from that mold, but it doesn't matter. It'll just make me more productive. That's right. So tonight, I'm going to go to your New Year's Eve show. I'm I love that. To, my wife and I, we bought tickets. I didn't ask I the person who sent me. I, I no. could have gotten you tickets. I know someone. No. Herb Kane used to do that, and now everybody comes to me and thinks it's a shakedown. So I buy my really? tickets everywhere. Yeah, I go. I still go places, and people are like trying to give me stuff. And I'm like, no, it's, it's different now. You don't have oh, to give me anything. Oh, my gosh. So my wife and I are going tonight. Um, I wanted to ask you. When people come up to you, um, what's the most common thing? Is it people who, I saw you at the other cafe. Is it people who are, wait, wait, don't tell me? Are people coming up who are fans of the podcast? What's kind of the mix? And can you tell by the look in their eye which one that they're, and that's my final question. Okay. (laughs) I have recently, I was just, recently, I have a spate of 10-year-old boys <laughs> who come up to me and tell me that they listen to Nobody Listens to Paul <laughs> no. Yeah. And what they usually say is, I've checked the men's room and Thomas Coyne isn't in there, <laughs> um, which is a running joke yes. on, on the <laughs> podcast. Um, I probably get the biggest response from um, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me yeah. listeners. And they're very sweet. And they'll say, like, we listen to you every weekend. And I... 
I never say to them, I'm not on every weekend, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but I'm very flattered that they do. And, th- you know, the, the truth is, I have fans who've been coming to my shows forever who never heard of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And I have Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me listeners who are very confused as to why I'm not answering questions about the week's news while I'm on stage because they had no idea I was a stand-up comic. <laughs> um, but the good news is that those two groups get along very well. So yeah. I've... I've, I've, I've I, I've blended like the like the dry ingredients when you make brownies. I've blended in the wait, wait, don't tell me fans, and they're great. Um, and uh, you know, yeah, they're they're smart, and they and they and they can live through Pledge Week. <laughs> well, thank you for coming back to the Chronicle, uh, back to the big event, and uh, you're always welcome here. I, I think it's so great when I get an email, and and I I always wonder if you're going to be willing to come back, but I always hold back a few things we always find some new finds so oh well thank you very much i'll i'll start releasing phony things just so you'll keep having me (laughs) oh look this is a picture of you and nelson mandela thanks a lot paula thank you You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Paula Poundstone. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read all our Total SF coverage and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com slash totalsf. Total SF.